Charles Ball, he ends up in these outer defenses there at Baltimore. And when the British attack there, he helps drive the land attack back. And then simultaneously a naval attack against Fort McHenry. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Naval Academy Museum for the final Shifley lecture for this academic year. Uh, as you know, the lecture series is supported by the class of 1950 Museum Endowment in recognition of the significant contribution made to the endowment by the Shifley Trust. Vice Admiral Ralph Shifley was a highly decorated naval aviator, a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, class of 1933. He participated in World War II operations against the Japanese at New Guinea, Saipan, Guam, the Palaos, and the Philippines. He was awarded the Navy Cross and Distinguished Flying Cross. And I'm uh, very pleased to introduce Dr. Gene Smith, who has a very long and distinguished career. He's Professor of History and Director of the Center for Texas Studies at TCU. And he promised me before he leaves here next in a couple of months that he's going to treat me to a proper Texas vegan barbecue. <laughs> Among his many works are Thomas A.P. Catesby Jones, Commodore of Manifest Destiny, Filibusters and Expansionists, Jeffersonian Manifest Destiny, 1800 to 1821, and for the purpose of defense, the politics of the Jeffersonian gunboat program. His most recent book is The Slave's Gamble, Choosing Sides in the War of 1812, and he is this year's class of 1957 Distinguished Lecturer, and we are pleased to have you here this year. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank the, the museum, the class of 1950, the Shifley family, um, the class of 1957, the Naval Academy, you know, the American public, uh, all my fans. Uh, I just keep going, it seems like, uh, all the people I, I'm fortunate enough to, that have supported me over the years. I'm a scholar of early America. I write on naval and maritime topics, and I write on a variety of things, um, mainly territorial expansion, the War of 1812. I've written a book on the American Civil War about the Monitor and the Merrimack, uh, and that was grew out of another project that I'd written, a, a biography of a naval officer named Thomas App Catesby Jones, who was in the U.S. Navy from 1807 to 1853. Uh, so he's one of those antebellum naval officers who helped form the core of what the Navy came to represent. Now, as I began this project here, I was convinced that I was working on a War of 1812 project. I was convinced that this was a story about the United States fighting against the British. Well, I learned very quickly that it was far different than that. And as I was writing this book, it didn't really become a book about the War of 1812. It became a book about freedom and how slaves and free blacks used the chaos of war for an opportunity to find freedom for themselves. And what I'd like to do today, I, the book has chapters that deal with the Great Lakes, it has chapters dealing with the, uh, the war at sea, but what I'd like to do today is tell you three short vignettes 
or stories about individual slaves. And from that, maybe we can extrapolate some kind of meaning of what freedom represented. Now, this book really begins with the, an event. It begins with an event. What this story begins with is an event that happens in June 1807. And for many people, they thought it would be what caused the War of 1812. It's the event when the USS Chesapeake is going on a shakedown cruise out of Norfolk, and as it's exiting the Virginia Capes, it is hailed by a British ship, the HMS Leopard, and what they want to do is search the British, uh, search the American ship for deserters. Now, Captain James Barron of the Chesapeake refused to permit his ship to be searched. Instead, the British fired three broadsides into the American ship before a single American gun was set off. Now, what, what that meant was that this was an act of war. This was an attack against a sovereign nation. And Barron, because his ship was on a shakedown cruise, there was still baggage on the decks, he ends up lowering his flag, surrendering his ship. Now, instead of Captain Salisbury's Humphreys coming over, he sent junior British officers over. And when they arrived, Barron tried to offer his sword to the British officers. They refused to accept it. Instead, they asked for the muster books, uh, the muster rolls, they asked for the log books, and they wanted to question the crew. So they lined the crew up, went through, questioned these men. They found four men they claimed to be deserters, and they took them off the ship in chains. Now, the Chesapeake would limp back to Norfolk Harbor, four men dead, 18 holes in the hull, um, at, pardon me, 18 men wounded, 22 holes in the hull of the ship. And the British went back to their, sta their station there in the Chesapeake. The four men that they had seized, three of them were African American, three were black. Yet, when the American ship returns to Norfolk, the American public began crying out against this outrage against American honor. They cry out that American citizens have been impressed, that this violates American sovereignty. And yet, the irony of it is, of three of those four men were not citizens. They were black. They were not considered to be citizens. And yet, this is an event which almost precipitated war. Now, we know the war doesn't begin until roughly five years later. But at this point in time, we were on the cusp of war. And that brings me to my first vignette. It's a story of a man named Peter Dennison. Peter Dennison, have you heard of the name Peter Dennison? You know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Peter Dennison? <laughs> no? I'd not heard of Peter Dennison either when I began this project. Peter Dennison was a slave of all places in Detroit, Michigan. Now, oftentimes you say, wait a minute, Detroit? That was the Northwest Territory. That was free territory. Well, yes and no. What happens is that this territory, the Northwest, would be retained by Great Britain after the American Revolution because of debts owed by American merchants to British entrepreneurs. And they held on to that territory 
until the summer of 1796. It's only after Jay's Treaty is many of those posts in the Northwest evacuated. Places like Detroit. Well, up until that time, the British held on to it and slavery existed in Detroit because it was British territory. Now, in 1793, the British began to ab abolish slavery in Canada. And just a few years after that, they turn over this territory to the United States. So all of a sudden, with this new territory coming online, the Northwest Ordinance of 1785, pardon me, the Land Ordinance of 1785, the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, it defined this territory, it created boundaries, it also set up a territorial government, and it stipulated that slavery would be prohibited in this territory. So now, after the summer of 1796, Detroit, Detroit here, was going to be free. Well, that causes problems. Because even though the Canadians had, had abolished slavery, it didn't free all slaves in Canada. In fact, it was gradual emancipation for those slaves that were already alive. And for some slaves, that gradual period of emancipation lasted as long as 25 years. So what happens is slaves began crossing the border, fleeing Canada for the freedom of the United States. Now, wait a minute. That throws everything upside down. You know, when we think about the Underground Railroad, we think about a path to freedom that leads from south to north. What we're talking about here is for a very narrow period of time, roughly 1796 until 1815, that path to freedom is going to lead from Canada to the Northwest Territory. Okay, that's the background here. Slaves are escaping into Detroit. And the governor there, a guy named William Hull, is thinking, wait a minute, we've got this influx of refugee runaways. What am I going to do with them? I have to make sure they're not a drain on society. And then in the summer of 1807, there's that attack of the Chesapeake. They're off the coast of Virginia, 1,500 miles away. And out here on the western frontier, Governor William Hall is thinking, we are about to go to war. I have no army to speak of. I have very small militia. What I do have is a large number of runaway slaves. Well, how does Peter Dennison figure into that equation? Well, Peter Dennison, as I mentioned, was a slave. He was owned by a woman named Catherine Tucker. And Tucker's husband died in 1805, so she began experiencing financial difficulties. So by the spring of 1806, she decided to lease her slave Peter Dennison, to a man named Elijah Brush. Now, probably, have anyone here from Detroit? There's actually a, a portion of Detroit called Brush because he was one of the first mayors of Detroit. So he purchased the lease for Peter Dennison. And according to the, the transaction, he would hold on to Dennison for a year. Catherine Tucker received a sum of money. End of that year, Peter Dennison would get his freedom. Now, in the spring of 1807, just shortly before the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, 
that contract was about to expire. And Catherine Tucker claimed that she had been defrauded. So she filed suit in the Michigan Territorial Court. And it would be Judge Augustus Woodward. Whoops, I thought I had his image there, I'm sorry. Uh, Judge Augustus Woodward who would hear the case. And ultimately what Woodward decided was that property rights would be upheld. Peter Dennison was a slave, so he was there for property. Now, why wasn't he freed? Well, because he had been a, a slave under the British regime. And even though Detroit was now free, those slaves that were previously under the British regime remained as slaves. So he remained a slave. Catherine Tucker claimed she'd been defrauded, and Judge Woodward ruled that she had, not been, uh, she had been defrauded, and she returned the property to Mrs. Tucker. So Peter Dennison remained a slave. And his court case had gained a considerable notoriety. So that in the summer, late summer of 1807, when Hull thinks he's about to go to war, he sees all of these runaway slaves. He decides to form them into a militia company. And he asks Peter Dennison to be the commander of that company. Now here's the real irony. Free runaway slaves serving in the rank and file of the militia company, commanded by Peter Dennison, a slave. Now you can imagine the white people there absolutely raised hell about this. They write letters to the governor, they write letters to the judge, they write letters to the Secretary of State James Madison, they write letters to President Jefferson, and they're crying out that these people should not be armed here in Detroit. Well, we don't go to war in 1807. So by the end of the year, the militia is dismissed. Peter Dennison remains a slave. Now, when the war finally does come in the summer of 1812, one of the first theaters of operation is, of course, Detroit. In August 1812, Isaac, uh, William Hull surrenders Detroit to Isaac Brock, and by doing so, he becomes one of the great villainous traitors of America. You know, in the 19th, if I, if I say the name Benedict Arnold, what does that denote to you? Traitor, treason. In the 19th century, the name William Hull was far more synonymous with treason than was Benedict Arnold. But in the 19th century, Hull's family worked to clear his name. And by the end of the century, they had cleared his name. And today, we just, we don't equate it to treason. We just don't even think about him. So I guess it's, it's probably more important to be forgotten by history than to be, you know, equated with a, a, being a traitor. Well, when the war happens, he surrenders Detroit, and according to that surrender, the officers and the soldiers were taken as captives into Canada, and the militia were told to return home. Peter Dennison and the black militia were sent home. Now, at that point, we're not quite sure what happens to Peter Dennison. He disappears until the spring of 1816. And in the spring of 1816, he shows up across the Detroit River in a little community called Sandwich. It's in Canada. He had joined a church. The church secretary recorded his name as Peter Dennison, D-E-N-N-I-S-O-N. -N -N. 
This Peter Dennison had a wife named Hannah. This Peter Dennison had four children, the youngest of which was Lizbeth. Peter Dennison, that had been a slave in America, had a wife named Hannah, had four children, the youngest of which was someone named Lizbeth. The Peter Dennison in America, the slave, spelled his name with one N. Peter Dennison in Canada spelled his name with two. Is it the same person? I'm pretty much convinced it is. Perhaps that church secretary couldn't spell so well. Maybe it's like some of my midshipmen can't spell so well. Now, the difference is that this Peter Dennison in Canada listed himself as a free man. He had used the chaos of war to make his way across into Canada and declare himself free. What's happening here What's happening here is that, remember I told you that from 1796 to 1815, that Underground Railroad went south in a way that we don't normally equate. But after 1815, when we think of the Underground Railroad, it's that path north to freedom. And what you can see in the case of Peter Dennison, it is he is among the vanguard. He is right there among the first to make that cross into Canada and to find and to seize his own freedom. So his story is kind of a feel-good story. He found his own freedom. He secured, he earned his own freedom. Now the second guy I want to mention, his name is Charles Ball. He's from Calvert County, Maryland. Surely you've heard of Charles Ball. Some of you may have. Being a Marylander, you might have heard of Charles Ball. He was born about the year 1783. And when he was four, his family was sold away from him. His mother and his younger daughter uh, and her, his younger sister were sold south to South Carolina, Georgia, into slavery. And he said that left a very memorable mark on him. He was, stayed in the household of a man that was particularly brutal and mean, didn't treat him very well, but he was trained to be a house servant until he was about... 14 years old when he was then put out into the field. So this would have been about 1797. And his master in the year 1800 leased him out to the U.S. Navy, to the Washington Navy Yard, where he served as a cook aboard the USS Congress. Now the, the ship remained at the Washington Navy Yard, so he never went out to sea. But there he did see lots of black sailors and he came to understand that the maritime world was not a world in black and white it was a multicolored world and that service aboard a ship could well wouldn't bring him equality but it could elevate his status so he began making plans to try to escape and every time he was about to launch his plan something happened about 1803, he was called back to the plantation. And his master sold him to another man, a man named Levin Ballard. And particularly Ballard was a, a spiteful, mean, hateful man. He beat Charles Ball. He constantly 
uh, verbally abused him. He didn't give him much in terms of food, clothing, shelter. But nonetheless, Charles Ball was able to marry. I used to say he had children. No, his wife had children. I've learned the difference between him having them and her having them. Um, and he seemed to be tolerating his existence there on Levin Ballard's plantation until about the year 1807, when Ballard sold him into slavery south to South Carolina. So he was pulled away from his family, put into chains, taken south to South Carolina, and there he was sold again to another plantation in Georgia. Now, he claimed that he was able to escape the plantation, travel only at night, living off the land, and he made his way back to, to Calvert County. Now, the first thing I wondered is, why in the hell do you go back to the place where you were sold into slavery? By the time he got back to Calvert County, apparently Levin Ballard had died. And apparently Levin Ballard was not even liked by his white neighbors. Because when Charles Ball returned, the other white farm owners began to hire him out as a free laborer. And he prospered until the spring of 1813 when the, Ch when the Chesapeake Bay began to suffer the ravages of the War of 1812. In fact, it would be at that point in time that Charles Ball lived on a plantation that was raided by British soldiers. And Charles Ball himself did not leave because his wife was on another nearby plantation. The plantation owners there in Calvert County in the early summer of 1814, uh, pardon me, early summer of 1813, they traveled to the British fleet. They asked Admiral Warren if they could appeal to the slaves to see about convincing them to return. And Warren said, certainly, you can appeal to them. They asked Charles Ball to go with them. <coughs> so for the better part of an afternoon, these white slaveholders tried to convince their slaves to return to their bondage. And guess how many chose to return? Zero. Not surprising. As they left, they asked Charles Ball to stay on the ship and to try to convince others. So he spent the night. The following morning, as he was preparing to leave the ship, guess how many slaves were leaving now? Still zero. And as Charles Ball was leaving, a British officer asked him, would you like to join us as a free man in a British colony? And Charles Ball said, no, sir, I am a free man. I have all the land to work that I can work. So he had consciously crafted an image of himself as a free man. In reality, he is a fugitive slave. He had escaped bondage in Georgia. The following year, when the British intensified the fighting in the Chesapeake Bay under the command of Alexander Cochrane, Cochrane would issue a proclamation to all slaves who wanted to find their freedom. The British established, they established a base on Tangier Island 
and they began to raid plantation, liberate slaves, convert them to refugees, bring them back to Tangier Island, and then began transporting them to other British colonies. Hundreds of slaves were going to be liberated from the shores of, the Virgi of Virginia and the Chesapeake. In fact, the Chesapeake suffers disproportionately during the war. Charles Ball, instead of choosing to become a British colonial marine, about 600 of these refugees did agree to take up arms to fight against the Americans, and they became some of Admiral George Coburn's best soldiers. He said one of the nice things about these colonial marines is that when you conduct operations inland, you don't have to worry about them deserting. Yeah, because they're not running back to slavery. Charles Ball, instead of joining with the British, he joined Joshua Barney's flotilla in the Chesapeake. And he served aboard those tiny boats as Barney evacuates his fleet up the Patuxent. When Barney detonates, destroys, scuttles his vessels, Charles Ball is among the sailors in the Marine that carry literally anything they can off toward the Washington Navy Yard. And when they get to the Washington Navy Yard, they immediately grab six pound guns and begin dragging them out to the American position at Bladensburg. In fact, they hold a position on the high ground overlooking the Anacostia or the Eastern Branch of the Potomac. Charles Ball was a sponger on a cannon. So every time they fired the gun, he took his sponge, he rammed it in the bucket of water, rammed it down the barrel to pull out the burning embers or to extinguish the burning embers. You don't want burning embers when you're putting more gunpowder in. And they continued to fire as the British crossed over this tiny bridge here and began to work their way toward Washington. The American militia bro broke pretty quickly. A handful of regular U.S. Army troops held for a short time before they too evacuated. The last ones to, to retreat would be Barney, his Marines, and his sailors there. And only, they only retreated when Barney was wounded. As he fell to the ground, he ordered his men to spike their guns and to retreat. Charles Ball, while most of the white sailors began moving towards Washington, Charles Ball dropped his sponge and walked directly into the British lines. They didn't shoot him, didn't kill him. They thought he was a refugee who was wanting his freedom. So he walked right into the teeth of the British attack and ultimately made his way on to Baltimore. The British under Coburn would end up moving into Washington. They burned public buildings. You know, uh, I've learned here that Marines like to say, well, they don't burn the Marine barracks. And it wasn't because the Marines had been so brave at Bladensburg. It was because the Marine barracks were adjacent to private buildings and Coburn didn't want to destroy private property. You know, it had nothing to do with their bravery at Bladensburg. So please, midshipmen, get that through your heads. But they do burn the executive mansion. They do burn the Capitol. Uh, the Americans had, deton or the, had destroyed the Navy Yard as they had evacuated. Charles Ball, he ends up in these outer defenses there at Baltimore. 
And when the British attack there, he helps drive the land attack back. And then simultaneously a naval attack against Fort McHenry. And after the battle, Charles Ball goes back to being a farmer and a fisherman. Living a life as a free man. Until about the year 1830. When all of a sudden a slave trader coming through Calvert County claims that he recognizes Ball from 25 years before. Threw him in chains, dragged him back to Georgia. Now Ball claimed he was able to escape again. This time it took him about a year and a half to make his way back. By the time he got back, his wife and his kids had been dragged off into slavery. Now, Charles Ball would write an autobiographical memoir and be published in 1838, which he, he explained what had happened to him. And he claimed from his, re, his return to Maryland in 1831 to 1838, he had spent all of his money, he had mortgaged all of his land to try to find his family to no avail. Now, Charles Ball could have had a much different situation. Had he been willing to accept had he been willing to accept the British promise of freedom. But instead, he maintained that he was free. And by maintaining he was free, it brought him nothing but despair. So his story, not quite as happy as that of Peter Dennison. Now the last story I want to mention is the slave named Ned Simmons. He was owned by none other than General Nathaniel Green. He had served under Green in the Revolution. He had had a distinguished military record in the Revolution. But after the war, he returned with Green to Green's new plantation on Cumberland Island, Georgia, called Dungeness Plantation. And in the mid-1780s, uh, Green dies. And the property passes to the family. A son named Nat, the wife named Julia, a daughter named Julia. It's kind of confusing at times. Julia, Julia, and Nat. Well, the slaves ping-pong around the family. No one really wants them. And although their status is ping-pong, or legal status, ping-ponging around the family, the slaves' daily existence didn't change at all there on Dungeons Plantation. They lived by the cycles of the year. The rising and falling of the sun. Until the War of 1812 came to Cumberland Island. And it came in January 1815. Now, oftentimes when you say the war came in January 1815, people say, wait a minute, the war was over at that point. Remember they signed that Treaty of Ghent on Christmas Eve, 1814. So if it's January 1815, that's after, so the war was over. Yes, but news of the war's end doesn't make it here to, meet, to uh, Cumberland Island until mid-March 1815. The treaty's not ratified until mid-February 1815. So it takes months for that information to circulate. And until it does, none other than George Coburn. You gotta like him. Look at his official portrait there. What does it show in the background? The burning of Washington. That was one of his official portraits. That one hangs in the Greenwich Maritime Museum. So yeah, you can go there and see our capital being burned. Now, Coburn would conduct operations along the sea islands of, of Georgia and South Carolina, 
and liberate hundreds of slaves. In fact, ultimately about 1,700 slaves in a period of about two and a half months. 1,400 of those will be evacuated to British colonies. And as they, evac as they liberated slaves and brought them to Cumberland Island, men were given the chance to serve in the military, to serve as colonial marines. Ned Simmons would be one of the first. And in fact, the British were so surprised that he knew how to handle himself with a military bearing. Remember, he had fought in the Revolution. George Coburn even commented in his letters about Ned Simmons that he was a fine, outstanding soldier. In fact, even though he was old, by this time he is, he's born roughly 1760. So he's roughly 50, I'm not good at this math thing. Somebody help me here, 58 maybe? Uh, yeah, more or less. He's old, yeah, that's it. That's what my, my son says, he, he'd obviously be old. Now, because he was that age, Coburn said, I will keep Ned Simmons on Cumberland Island to serve as an example to every slave who arrives there what they too can become. He had that much confidence in Ned Simmons. And Ned remained there on the island until mid-March 1815 when American peace commissioners arrived and demanded that the British return property that had been seized during the war, including slaves. Coburn, he haggled with them for the better part of a week when he finally said, I will only return those slaves that are still on the island. Ned Simmons was still on the island. According to the family tradition, Ned Simmons, was his weapon was taken from him, his uniform was stripped off of him. And as they stripped the uniform, he held on to it as they pulled it away from him. And as they literally yanked it out of his hands, he held on to a brass button. That became a symbol of how close he had gotten to freedom in the spring of 1815. Well, Ned Simmons does eventually gain his freedom. When? 1863. He is roughly 103 years old. And in the early part of 1863, federal forces took control of Fernandina here. Ned Simmons and his 70-year-old daughter would use cover of darkness to make their way to Fernandina. They had left so rapidly that they didn't even have a chance to, to gather their personal belongings. When they got to Fernandina, there were missionary women that provided assistance and support to the refugees. They began teaching many of them to read. In fact, as a centenarian, Ned Simmons learned how to read. And there was a newspaper reporter there. This is how we know about Ned Simmons because he began talking with Ned and documenting Ned's story. I mean, this is a slave who had served with General Green, who had met George Washington on at least three occasions. And he had gotten his freedom. Well, the last interview he did, Ned said something to the fact that if I were to die today, I could go to heaven knowing that I am a free man. He died about two weeks later. And in the 1990s, 
the National Park Service began excavating the slave cabins on Dungeness Plantation. And in one of the largest, one of the largest um, cabins, they found a brass button from a British 1808 uniform. It reconfirmed the family's oral tradition that he had held onto that button as a symbol of how close he had gotten to freedom. But he did. He didn't get it until he was 100 plus years old. That was a heartwarming story. That's when I realized that this book is not about war and it's not about, you know, the, certainly not about the War of 1812. It's about people trying to find their freedom. And there's hundreds of these stories. George Roberts, who sailed on the Pride of Baltimore and saw men cut down, sliced in half by cannonballs, and survived to make his way back to Baltimore just a few months after the Battle of Baltimore. And the Pride of Baltimore became a symbol of Baltimore's contributed privateering heritage in the War of 1812. And George Roberts became a symbol of black participation in Baltimore. He participated in the Defenders Day celebrations until almost until the American Civil War. Jordan Noble there, the drummer boy for Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. He was 14 years old. He lives ultimately to 1890 and not only served with Jackson at New Orleans, but served in the Seminole War, fought with Zach Taylor during the Mexican War, and when the American Civil War begins, he, Im he immediately raises a regiment of troops for the Confederacy. Well, you know, the Union takes over New Orleans pretty quickly. So then he raises a regiment of troops for the Union. So he had no qualms about who he would support. But there are lots of these stories, and ultimately what this book became was a story about how people took the chance to find their freedom, in some instances to seize their freedom. And as I began this project, I was convinced it was a project about hope that the American Revolution had unleashed these revolutionary ideas about liberty and equality and independence and hopefully that the War of 1812 would close the loop. Well, for roughly 4,800 people, it does. Roughly the 4,800 that make their way to British colonies, including Canada, Bermuda, Barbados, Belize. My favorite is a group in Belize and another group in Trinidad. There are about 1,000 that end up in Trinidad, and they call themselves Merkins, M-E-R-I-K-E-N-S. And they still hold on to that identity of being refugees that had fled, free, uh, fled slavery. In fact, the, the wife of a former prime minister of Trinidad was a part of this American class. Blacks participated in literally every theater of operations on land and sea in operations at against Washington and Baltimore. They helped throw up defenses in Philadelphia and New York. They participated in the, along the Great Lakes. And this hope that they would find freedom because of their participation, it never fully pays out. In fact, what happens is the war only intensifies slavery thereafter. In the Chesapeake, for example, where the war had been so destructive, 
In the post-war period, the states of Virginia and Maryland become much more adamant about defending their states' rights ideologies. And since the federal government had not provided any protection for them, they knew they had to protect themselves. Across the Gulf South, with the opening up of new lands, new lands that became cotton lands, slavery would be reinvigorated and become even stronger after the War of 1812. So what I like to do here is finish with something you may know. The Defense of Fort McHenry, written by Francis Scott Key. We often refer to it as the Star Spangled Banner. There are multiple verses to this. And the third verse, it's got a couple of lines here. It says, their blood has, their blood has washed out their foul footstep pollution. No refuge could save the hireling enslaved from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. Well, those hireling enslaved were those refugees that the British used to fight against the Americans in this war. And they do ultimately get their freedom. But for most of them, while they get their freedom, they don't get any sense of economic prosperity until the mid part of the 19th century. So those who fought for the Americans, they turn out far worse than those that fought for the British or for the Spanish. So as I said, when I began this project, I thought it was a dichotomy between the United States and Great Britain. Come to find out there's a Spanish element in this and slaves would often side with Native Americans and slaves would often side with runaway maroon communities. So for slaves, there were lots of options about who they would side with. Those who side with the British and the Spanish turn out the best. Those who side with the Indians turn out the worst. Those who side with runaway maroon communities turn out the worst. And if you sided with the Americans, it turns out pretty bad. So, thank you so much. I'll entertain questions. In fact, you make up questions, I'll make up answers. Dungeness is the Carnegie place that's in ruins? It is. It is, yes. Um, other questions? Yes. Wasn't it in part Benedict Arnold burning the stick village of uh, Iowa or of uh, the Canadian capital? That, that they burned? Yeah, that caused them to really come down and burn D.C.? And it's not Benedict Arnold. It's uh, Pike. Okay. Zebulon Pike. And the reason they burn most of it's called York at the time. The reason they burn York is uh, during the attack on York, a magazine exploded and it uh, resulted in a, a, a number of deaths, American deaths. And in retaliation for that, they burned the rest of the city. Now, when they burned the city, that just began escalating the atrocities on both sides. I mean, the Canadians come across and they, they literally leveled uh, Detroit they burned most of the area there along the Niagara Peninsula. And then, of course, in the Chesapeake, when Admiral Co uh, Cochrane comes in, he says, we are going to lay waste and destroy the American Republic. He thinks that it, the only way you'll get the Americans to stop fighting is to treat them so harshly with such ferocity that it will break their will to fight. 
So that's why you start seeing all the raids in the Chesapeake. That undermines the Chesapeake economy. And in fact, I'm convinced the Chesapeake economy doesn't recover until she's the 1840s, 1850s. Other questions? No? Yes? No? Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.